Good afternoon and uh, welcome to our webinar. Thank you for joining us and thank you to the Boston Bar Association for hosting us. Uh, my name is Eric Weibust. I'm a partner in the Boston office of Seifarth Shah. Um, I am a co-chair of the, of the Boston office litigation department. I'm a member of the firm's trade secrets, non-competes and computer fraud practice group. And joining me today is uh, one of our star associates, Michael Kippens. And Michael, I'll let you introduce yourself. Great, thanks, Eric. So as Eric said, uh, my name is Michael Kippens. I am a litigation associate in the Boston office, mm -hmm. and I work on trade secret non-compete claims as well, in addition to general commercial litigation claims. All right, so the COVID-19 pandemic, um, to say the least, has changed everything. It's affected just about everybody, in particular in the uh, information economy. Um, I dare say that the vast majority of employees, in particular white collar employees, are now working remotely and will be at least to some degree for the foreseeable future. And as a result of that, companies have had to quickly roll out new technologies um, that's sometimes untested, sometimes insecure um, for both communications like this, data transfer, and other types of things. Um, now, while remote work obviously is designed to minimize the risk of virus transmission, it may increase the risk of trade secret misappropriation. Um, and although these changes to the workplace may ultimately increase the need for judicial intervention um, to protect trade secrets going in for TROs and preliminary injunctions, access to the court system has also changed substantially. Um, and although the situation is constantly evolving and highly localized, access to a lot of courts, uh, both state and federal, remains limited today um, and will continue to for some time, again, depending on the location. And even where access is assured, um, where, for instance, emergency matters are being heard, um, establishing what is in an emergency for purposes of obtaining, of obtaining injunctive relief um, may no longer be subject to the same pre-pandemic standards. So those are the things we're gonna to try to address today. You can see the agenda in front of you. This is what we're gonna cover. Um, heightened risks to trade secrets as a result of COVID-19. What constitutes reasonable measures to protect trade secrets? Preparing for and pursuing trade secret litigation during court closures. Enforcing non-competes during high unemployment and succeeding in a post-pandemic world. With that, I'll turn it over to Michael for the first section. Thank you, Eric. So I'm going to talk a bit about heightened risks to trade secrets as a result of the pandemic. And as Eric sort of outlined in his introduction, the fact that people are working more from home obviously creates a twofold risk, at least as I see it, one from internal sources, so employees, and then one from external sources, from people who are trying to get at trade secret or other types of information through phishing schemes or, or the like. So I'll discuss these heightened risks. And of course, with trade secrets, the baseline is that you wanna be able to keep whatever technology or information secret. So any risks to those things getting out is something that companies should be paying close attention to. So with respect to remote working, there are a number of risks that will come up and you see them listed here on the slide. Uh, for example, new technology, companies just trying to accommodate people who are working from home in the sense that they want them to have an ease of workflow in their new environment and, and excuse me, employees 
are no longer using the same hardware that they would necessarily use in the office that are not connected necessarily to the same system or, or Wi-Fi networks, for example. There's also probably going to be an increased use of personal devices, which creates uh, yet another risk because you have just increased access to information and increased areas in which the information can be found. So both in a physical and in a virtual sense. So the physical sense being, for example, being around new printers, being around public printers, or just in general being in a public space where you are going to have other people walking through that can see the information with their, with their naked eye. Uh, in the virtual sense, of course, you have people exchanging emails potentially to their own personal accounts, uh, people who are using new software or new programs at home to ease their transition. And although we've been in the sort of quarantine period for a few months now and things are starting to open up a, a bit, a number of people are still going to be working from home for the foreseeable future. Uh, so with the the internal sort of employee perspective of how to protect trade secrets. Those are the types of heightened risks that companies should be looking at and monitoring for as the pandemic and the quarantine period and the remote work period uh, for whatever period of time it continues, those things should be monitored. Uh, with respect to the phishing schemes and other types of fraud, the sort of external risks that I was discussing earlier, there are a number of people who will always be trying to get that information. And now with the knowledge that people are in a somewhat less secure uh, remote work sense, those efforts to get that information could see increases. And in fact, we know from certain law enforcement agencies that those phishing schemes and other types of fraud have in fact increased uh, I'll read the quote here. The first one, uh, both CISA and NCSC are seeing growing use of COVID-19 related themes by malicious cyber actors. And at the same time, the surge in teleworking has increased the use of potentially vulnerable services such as VPNs, amplifying the threat to individuals and organizations. So it's not necessarily just a theoretical idea that these phishing schemes and other types of fraud may be occurring there is actually tangible evidence that they are. Uh, another example is Zoom bombing, as I'm sure a number of you have heard. Uh, there were some issues that Zoom apparently had that where people were, be, people were able to gain access to other, you know, other people's Zoom meetings. And in the case that you're discussing any sort of confidential information or trade secret information with an employee, over Zoom, that could be a potential area of risk as well. Uh, similarly, the, the FBI has been investigating and targeting these types of fraud and the schemes that other people have really tried to implement in order to gain access to this information. And there's been an urge for organizations to obviously you know, cooperate with these types of investigations and also ensure that they're doing the best that they can to protect the information and really monitor where potential threats are and to report those threats to the extent that they are discovered. 
And so with that, I will turn it over to Eric on reasonable measures. Eric, you're muted. <laughs> Sorry about that. Um, as Michael mentioned, there's both internal threats and external threats. Uh, the external ones are often a bit sexier, the, the hacker, the foreign infiltrator, et cetera. But far more common is the, is the insider threat, employees, either because they're doing something on purpose and nefarious, um, either they're, they're leaving the company, they're going to a competitor, they're mad, they got laid off, et cetera. Or even more often even um, would be just doing something stupid, not paying attention, not realizing that what they're doing is going to harm the company. And in fact, in this new scenario we're living in, where people are working remotely, they're not in the office every day, um, you'll see even more uh, of that happening. Again, not necessarily nefariously, but, but just because there's more opportunities for it, as Michael went through. So with that in mind, as, as Michael mentioned, you know, the, the kind of the, the basic um, tenet of trade secret laws that the information has to remain a secret um, or it's not a trade secret, uh, which means that companies have to take reasonable measures to ensure that it remains a secret. And this is a requirement explicitly set out in both federal and state law. The Defend Trade Secrets Act 2016 um, it requires reasonable measures to protect trade secrets. The Uniform Trade Secrets Act, which has been adopted in 49 states, every state except New York, also explicitly requires it. New York requires it as well under the common law. Um, and the question really is what, what constitutes reasonable measures? And that's gonna be a case by case, company by company, industry by industry um, standard. It's not gonna be the same for every company. A massive uh, international conglomerate is gonna have different standards than a mom and pop, just like a sale, a company with a, that's selling widgets is gonna have different standards than a defense contractor. Um, one thing that's for sure though is that Absolute secrecy and heroic measures are not required. Um, it's just a, it's a reasonableness standard. Um, is what you're doing going to protect the information? And this is important for, from two perspectives. Number one, of course, if you go into court to try to enforce your trade secret rights, either going after a, a, an employee, a former employee, a business partner, or some other bad actor, you're gonna have to meet this standard in order to prove your case, in order to get an injunction, in order to get damages. On the flip side, from a business perspective, um, you wanna be obviously imposing reasonable measures to protect those trade secrets so they don't get out in the first place and so that you don't have to find yourself in litigation. So it's really important both from a legal and a practical perspective that you're, um, that you're employing reasonable measures. And again, what's reasonable, Again, differs from industry to industry, company to company, but it's also changing, I would suggest, as the world is changing. Um, as we've been talking about, everybody's remote now um, and everybody's uh, you know, dealing with information in different ways and transferring information in different ways. You've obviously got to have um, reasonable measures in place, but are those going to be loosened a bit or relaxed a bit for, because of the circumstances? Maybe, maybe not. I would think that, that in some ways they will be. Um, but again, as the world continues to change, as the information economy changes, I think you'll see changes in the standard. So on the next slide, um, we suggest some reasonable measures that every company should be taking. Again, um, the level at which you take these, these measures is gonna depend on, on the company and the industry. But first and foremost, you've gotta set clear expectations, whether it's for your employees, for your business partners, whomever. Um, and the way you do this is through clearly worded contracts, policies, procedures, and communications. Every contract 
um, every every employment offer letter or employment contract, if you have a restrictive covenant contract, should very specifically lay out what the company um, believes constitutes confidential information and trade secrets, how they expect employees to treat that information or business partners. Contracts should be backed up by policies, in particular for employees and procedures. Um, uh, and, and the contracts should refer to those policies and procedures. And again, communication, communications with clients, or excuse me, with, with employees and business partners is paramount. If they don't know what these policies are, you can't expect them to follow them. If they don't know what's in the contract, you can't expect them to abide by it. Um, and different ways of doing that, um, kind of as a belt and suspenders approach would be to, if you've got documents that are very clearly confidential or trade secret information, you should mark them as such. It's not a requirement, but it's a best practice and it, and it doesn't hurt. It's really easy to go into court and if, if an employee downloaded a bunch of information on the way out the door, if it's marked confidential and you hand that up to the judge, that's a really compelling piece of evidence. Um, it says right on it that it's confidential there's no way this employee or this business partner could have thought otherwise. Similarly, um, if every time an employee logs into the system or a business partner logs into some sort of um, joint system that you're sharing with them, um, you should consider pop-up reminders um, that they have to click that they agree that everything in here is company property, it will be treated as confidential, it's not to leave the servers or the, or the database that it's contained in, um, and that and that the employee or the business partner recognizes that, understands it, and agrees to it. Again, it's just an extra thing that you can do, relatively easy. Um, it's not required, but it's, but it's a best practice. As I mentioned, policies, procedures, et cetera, are only as good as the paper they're written on if both people don't know what they are, but also if they're not trained on them and what they mean. Even a clearly worded policy can, should be trained on, whether that's, policies for protection of trade secret information and confidential information, how people are expected to treat that information, where they're allowed to take it, where they're not allowed to take it, who they're allowed to send it to, who they're not allowed to send it to. Um, for the younger generation that's, that's coming up with social media as a really central part of their, um, of their lives and they're, um, they're into sharing what they're doing and working on, you should have a social media policy that makes it very clear what you're allowed to talk about, what you're not allowed to talk about. You shouldn't be talking about and bragging about a project they're working on if it's a confidential project. Um, and, and, and you'll see other issues raised in those types of policies as well. But all of this should be trained on. You should be training the employees at least yearly, if not more um, often. And in fact, in this situation that we're in, I would suggest that more training is necessary because people are now in a new situation that they're not typically used to working in um, remotely. Um, another best practice or reasonable measure would be monitoring employees within the law. Um, you should consider, of course, what, what state law says about monitoring and comply with that, but you should also consider what is company culture. Some companies, you know, if you're in the defense industry, you're gonna wanna be doing a lot more monitoring than if you're in uh, a smaller widget selling company, for instance. Um, and you should think about disclosing it to the employees and what kind of culture you want to have. But there's certainly value to the monitoring um, uh, employees as necessary. And there's really cheap and, and, and good software out there you can do to do this. Um, I was on a panel once, this is kind of a more extreme example, but I was on a panel once with an in-house lawyer from a defense contractor. And she said that she regular that they have monitoring software. And anytime somebody sends an email 
from the company email to a personal email, she gets a dinger. She has to have an uncomfortable conversation with them. It's typically nothing, but it's something that they have to, because of all of the defense contractor rules, they have to do to make sure. Again, not every company is gonna do that, but it's, a, it's something to, to consider. Um, technical infrastructure is important. Figuring out what types of systems you're gonna be using, how secure they are, updating them, making sure you're implementing all updates. A lot of these companies in particular, you know, we're on Zoom right now. There were some questions early on about its, um, about its security and uh, they've since then issued a bunch of patches and, and updates that have, that have purportedly taken care of that. So you've got, if you're gonna use the technology, you need to make sure it's up to date, whether it's something as simple as Zoom or whether it's your IT department using more sophisticated technology. Um, and again, different levels of sophistication for different companies and industries. But as a baseline, you should be thinking about two-factor authentication when signing in, um, signing into a you know a need to know access to different areas of the servers and the and the databases, um, and so on and so forth. And then finally on this section, one thing that we've seen a lot of since this, uh, especially early on in the in the quarantine and the pandemic, is that people were working from home for the first time. They were getting really frustrated that it was harder to log in, it was harder to access things. You've got senior executives pushing back on IT and saying, I need to get this. I've got clients who I need to get this information to. And you saw some relaxing of security requirements, going from two-factor authentication to one, removing the need to do a, a code when you sign in each time, um, something our firm uses and I'm sure many companies use, and other things. You've got to be really careful when doing that. And you've got to obviously balance efficiency and ease of work and convenience with security. But as far as trade secrets are concerned, you've really got to come down on the side of, of secure um, systems as opposed to ease and convenience. But every company will need to make that determination for themselves. Thanks, Eric. So before we move to the next section, we actually have an interesting question here, which I'll, I'll throw to you, Eric, for your thoughts. And it says, with the increasing cybersecurity risks with people moving to remote work, do you think that organizations expect the remote work model to continue long-term and thereby the companies are taking the long-term view towards remote security or are they playing in a weighted out sort of uh, strategy? I think, I think it totally depends on the company. Um, we'll get to later in the, in the slide deck, we're gonna be talking about um, what to do as we emerge from this pandemic. And we've got some suggestions for that that largely track this list, but, but are a bit more robust. Um, I've seen our clients are, do, are doing both things. I think especially several weeks ago, a few months ago, there was a lot of hope that this was a very temporary thing, that we'd be out of it quickly, we'd be back to normal quickly. I think most companies are now realizing that that's probably not the reality, that at least for the next six months to a year, there's going to be, um, you know, I don't like this term, but a new normal um, that people are going to have to live within. And they're starting to think about how to better shore up their, their technical infrastructure, their policies, their procedures, et cetera. And I think the farther, the longer this goes on, especially if there's another outbreak in the fall, as some are suggesting there will be, or next, next spring, um, I think you'll see more and more companies really diving in and making remote work both more a part of their culture, but also more a part of their security infrastructure. Great, thank you, Eric. So we'll move to the next section on 
the preparation and pursuit of trade secret litigation while courts are uh, obviously limited in terms of the hearings that they're taking. So with respect to Massachusetts courts in particular, the state and federal courts have issued standing orders and uh, other guidance on the types of cases that they're going to be hearing in the near future. So at the very beginning of the quarantine period, they were taking basically just the most emergency matters and really focusing even within that on criminal matters. At least within the state courts, the SJC has just recently within the last couple of weeks issued a, an updated order that has to do with new requirements, but also changes what the deadlines and continuances will be for jury and bench trials. So as you'll see here, jury trials in the state courts are continued to no earlier than September 8th, and bench trials con are continued to no earlier than July 1st. So with July 1st obviously coming up within the next couple of weeks, uh, the court may or may not extend that deadline, but that is something that we'll see as we get closer to that date. And with respect to the bench trials, you still, it's within the judge's discretion whether or not to conduct the bench trial, so it's not something that can necessarily be done as of right. The SJC's order also, also required the trial courts and the appeals court to issue guidance on whether, on which types of non-emergency matters they would start to hear with respect to the, the June 1st effective date. So the trial courts have done so, the appeals court has done so, and with respect to, you know, claims that, oh, excuse me, proceedings that might implicate trade secret issues, uh, the rulings on motions filed under Rule 9A, final pretrial conferences, status conferences, and hearings on non-evidentiary motions are all things that are now included on the trial court list of non-emergency matters that can be held virtually, uh, notwithstanding the fact that these types of matters may still get less a uh, lower priority uh, to both criminal matters and then to emergency matters more generally. But I did want to note that the trial court standing order that's currently in effect does state that TRO requests are a time-sensitive matter and that they will be held hearings on them will be held as promptly as possible. The federal courts are in a similar position. They, they haven't given quite as you know, specific of guidance as the state courts have, but jury trials are continued to no earlier than September 8th. But within that context, there's still the opportunity for that deadline to be pushed depending on what happens with the, with the outbreak uh, if there's a second outbreak or if the one that's currently happening continues to rise. Uh, the federal court also is hearing emergency and non-emergency motions with priority being given towards criminal matters and emergency, emergency matters. With specific respect to trade secret issues and trade secret litigation, uh, these are obviously, it's possible to have emergency motions. So a TRO request or a request for preliminary injunction are things that should be considered. But what you want to do is make sure that you're balancing the need to actually get into court and hash out these issues in a TRO hearing or a motion for preliminary injunction. And you want to make sure that when you identify a claim as an emergency, that 
it, it has a reasonable that you have a reasonable basis for asserting that it is in fact an emergency. And in particular, I think you want to avoid, and you're probably wondering why there's a unicorn on the screen. <laughs> I think you want to avoid what happened in what I'll call the unicorn case, which is the Art Ask Agency case out of the Northern District of Illinois, where it was a case that involved counterfeit unicorn drawings. And in the case, the plaintiff filed a TRO request and saw a hearing from the court. And the court basically pushed back the hearing for a couple of weeks, stating that one, the there was a pandemic that was in effect. This case happened back in, or excuse me, the motion happened back in March. So this was sort of the beginning of the quarantine period. And the judge said that he was going to push back the hearing on the TRO because it didn't warrant that emergency level of uh, being addressed. And when that hearing got pushed back two weeks, the plaintiff actually filed a motion for reconsideration and really sought to have the hearing moved up. And in fact, they scheduled the hearing or, or put on the court schedule a date for the hearing that was actually blocked off by the court in advance for, for court business. And following that, the following that, the plaintiff actually filed yet another motion and basically said that this hearing needs to be uh, heard immediately and put it on the calendar for an emergency hearing for that particular day. And what the court found was basically that the plaintiff hadn't shown any irreparable injury would result from waiting the two-week period and that with the backdrop of limited resources in the courts and the pandemic in general, that this case really didn't warrant emergency review. And I'll, I'll put up a quote here from the case, or excuse me, from the order on the motion, and I'll just read it out. It says, plaintiff has not demonstrated that it will suffer an irreparable injury from waiting a few weeks. At worst, defendants might sell a few more counterfeit products in the meantime, but plaintiff makes no showing about the anticipated loss of sales. One wonders if the fake fantasy products are experiencing brisk sales at the moment. Uh, the world is facing a real emergency. Plaintiff is not. The motion to reconsider the scheduling order is denied. So that's obviously a result that you want to avoid if possible. And how you do that is just by making sure that you have a clear factual basis for why the hearing is being filed on an emergency basis. In addition to that, you, you're going to want to expect that there are going to be virtual hearings as opposed to in-person hearings, and that those hearings, because they're civil matters in particular, may be delayed. And with courts opening up at differing rates and with judges being available with differing frequency, there's not really uh, a great way to determine with which, you know, how fast they might be able to put together a hearing on your particular issue. But the idea is if you have a matter that you think is an emergency, to seek injunctive relief if necessary. Of course, outside of court, there are a number of different steps that companies can take in order to, uh, in order to protect against their trade secret theft or trade secret disclosure. And cease and desist letters are one example of that. Obviously, that doesn't require court involvement. Uh, just sending a cease and desist letter, preparing one and sending one to whichever company or companies or individuals 
are you think that are using trade secret information. Investigations as well uh, are another way that you can protect against trade secret disclosure. And I'll go to Eric for a little bit on investigations as well. Sure. Thanks, Michael. So, you know, your typical investigation um, could be as simple as, as really an, an exit interview um, or as complex as interviewing multiple witnesses, um, doing a forensic analysis of, of computers and servers and handheld devices, um, and also using, you know, you know, kind of gumshoe tactics, the private eye. Um, so, you know, the, the forensic side continues to this day to be, to be relatively easy to do, even in, in this situation. Um, various vendors that we work with um, have, have programs and products that can, that can gather information and analyze it remotely. In fact, our firm just came out with a, a pretty interesting um, uh, product that we're now using to do so. Um, and, and interviews can all also do be done remotely. Um, you know, we would suggest you do it by video rather than by phone um, because you can gauge people's credibility, decide whether they'd make a good witness if you want them to, determine whether they're lying, um, if, if, if they're adverse to you. We've got to make sure to be using those. Um, I had a situation, this was pre-COVID, but it was in the last year where our client's corporate security department was doing a, a major investigation on um, uh, commission manipulation. And they were interviewing one of the, um, they were interviewing a, an, an agent, this is an insurance company, and they did a via, they did all these interviews via Skype. And this particular agent said that his his camera on his computer wasn't working, and he he was kind of weird in his interview, and so on and so forth. Um, it turns out later we learned during discovery that the main bad guy in the case, the guy we actually ended up suing, um, was in the room with him, had instructed him to cover the camera and was writing answers for him on a whiteboard. Now you can't account for that, obviously in this circumstance, and it's good we found out later, but that's why you wanna be using stuff like cameras um, because it's, it, it helps you gauge that type of thing. And even with a camera on, they may never have known that um, unless it came out in the manner that it did, but it's a good reminder of that. Um, so you should try to you know, use, use the remote resources you have um, you know, the one thing that probably will be affected as far as investigations are the, the more traditional types of investigating surveillance, et cetera. Um, both because it's harder to do that because everybody's socially distant, but also because, you know, the same types of tactics that, that the bad guys, um, are using, um, are going to be different. You're no longer going to be necessarily going into a competitor's office to meet with them or like in the movies, meeting on a park bench in front of the White House. Um, it's gonna be, you know, all of that activity is gonna be done remotely, probably, presumably because of the quarantine and the, the social distancing. But you can certainly still, you certainly should still um, do investigations during this period of time. Thank you, Eric. And so I'll move to the next step, which is uh, agreed injunctions, which are used in this context a fair amount. And the idea is that Court involvement may be slow, number one, and it also may not give you the, give either party the response or the action to be taken that is desired on, on both sides. So by cutting the court out of it and doing, having an arrangement between yourself, your company, and whoever the dispute is with is a way to just minimize the risk that you're going to have an outcome that you couldn't have predicted. So agreed injunctions may be with respect to 
who can who can see the information or how it's going to be used and it also could include any number of issues that any company can can take and say you know th these are my issues this is why i feel that the the manner in which you're acting is contrary to this trade secret protection so it's just a way to draft an agreement where you know what the outcome is going to be and that it also would be enforceable to the extent that you have a dispute over what is contained in the actual agreement or the conduct that comes out of the agreement. Uh, expedited discovery is also something that, you know, it's just a way to exchange information without having to involve the court. You can agree similarly with agreed adjunctions to any extent you can always agree to exchange information and keep it confidential with a confidentiality agreement and that will allow you to discover the extent of whatever activity you think may be happening it also may help you prepare to fight back or provide a basis for an actual claim if you do end up going into court uh, alternative dispute resolution is obviously available and to a certain extent regardless of what People may think about ADR in general. In some cases, ADR or arbitration in particular is a good way to resolve trade secret claims because there's an element of confidentiality that can be brought into it, whereas you wouldn't necessarily have that protection uh, because the, co the courts are open to the public uh, with, without any sort of motion to seal, which is not necessarily going to be uh, accessible to you in a trade secret matter. And, and so, uh, sorry, go ahead, Eric. I was going to say, Michael, we got a really interesting question that I think is perfect for you because you presented on this issue to the BBA a few weeks ago. Um, but the question is, have you done any virtual depositions and do you expect this to become the new normal soon or more normal soon? Sure. So as Eric said, I have done uh, actually a couple of presentations on this. And despite the fact that I haven't actually conducted my own remote deposition, I have spoken with a number of people that have and have read a lot of materials on not only just depositions uh, but all sorts of court proceedings that are going to be done remotely for at least the foreseeable future. If you're asking my opinion, I think that with the ease with which people are finding that remote proceedings can occur, I think it will be more likely that these are happen that these will go on in the future, particularly where you may have clients that live outside the Commonwealth who may want to attend, or you can conduct an evidentiary hearing with a witness that is abroad or in some other jurisdiction, whereas scheduling that type of hearing might be more difficult if you required them to be in person. So I think that these types of remote proceedings will be seen with much more increased frequency going forward. One, because I think the courts are becoming more comfortable with it. And two, because it has a streamlined efficiency in terms of appearing and time management. And I would, thanks Michael, that was a great answer. I would just add to that. I think in our office, we've, we've seen quite a few remote depositions already. I think for the older guys like me, it's a little harder to kind of come to terms with not having that box of documents with three copies of each next to you that you can scribble on. I think for uh, younger folks like Michael, it'll probably come a little bit easier. 
but I think it, it, that the the agencies out there that do the court reporting, um, if you get the right one, they've got some really good technology. Um, and the same goes for the courts. I think a lot of, um, you know, despite the unicorn case, which came out early and there was another one that followed up on it quickly from another um, judge, there have been a lot of uh, remote um, injunction hearings that have been happening um, across the country. And we, we practice nationally, so we monitor this across the country and we've seen them all over the place. The one area that I've seen that's a little bit, the courts are a little more hesitant is with trials. Um, you know, there have been, as far as I know, there have been two remote trials that have occurred in federal court. There have probably been more. Uh, the reason I know of those two is we filed a motion last week for a remote trial um, next month on a very limited issue, not trade secrets. It was just on damages. Um, the other side didn't even oppose it. They didn't assent, but they didn't oppose it, and the court denied it, um, interestingly, and without any sort of explanation, which is a bit frustrating because it's hard to, you know, we all have to navigate this new this new atmosphere as well. Um, but as far as injunction hearings go, I, you know, our practice and, and friends and other firms, I'm hearing that there's a lot of um, a lot of remote hearings going on and it's going just fine. You might have fewer witnesses or the courts may decide things more on the papers and argument, but I, I think they'll get to witnesses as well. So next, uh, the next topic we're gonna cover is enforcing non-competes during times of high unemployment. Obviously one of the, um, primary ways that employers will protect their trade secrets along with their customer goodwill and relationships is through the use of restrictive covenant agreements, whether it's non-competes, non-solicits, uh, confidentiality, and the like. And they're also um, prevalent in the franchise industry uh, when somebody's selling a business. Um, you know, so there's all different types of circumstances in which um, you'd utilize non-compete agreements. But here we're going to talk about in the employment context because as we, know, we all know, over the past two, three months, something like 40 million people have been laid off uh, or furloughed. Um, people are looking for work, people are leaving. And the question is, there's two questions really. One, can you enforce a non-compete against a laid off employee or somebody who's terminated without cause? And two, perhaps the more important question, should you? Um, so the, the first question um, we can answer using our firm's 50 state desktop reference, um, which if you're interested, follow up with Michael or me and we'll get you a copy of it or you can Google it's online. Um, and among other issues, one of the areas we cover is whether or not non-competes are enforceable against discharged employees or at least employees who are discharged without cause. Um, and this is important because in particular a time like this, you, you know, you, you might question why would you terminate somebody and then want to enforce a non-compete against them. That seems both wrong, but also silly because if they weren't good enough to work for you, why would you care what they're doing out there in the market? And in a time like this, when you're really, um, when the economy all of a sudden just hit a wall, the government basically forced down businesses and the economy and companies were forced to make really hard decisions, whether it's laying employees off, cutting salaries, furloughing, so on and so forth. And you may have somebody during normal times who's a high performer, was access to really the, the most important sensitive information or some key customer relationships that you had to lay them off because they can't be out there selling right now or because the product can't be sold so your engineers can't be working, so on and so forth. So that's why you would need to do it. Um, according to our reference here, um, 28 states do in fact permit enforcement against discharged employees. Three likely would permit it, um, nine states would not, and in 10 states the issue is unresolved. That's as of this last publication of this, which was the end of the year last year. 
Um, and in fact, since then, and also before then, several states have passed new laws that address this very issue. The Massachusetts non-compete law that was passed recently specifically says we've got the language here that a non-competition agreement shall not be enforceable against employees that have been terminated without cause or laid off. So th that's the question about whether you, as a matter of law, you can enforce it um, or whether you get kicked out of court immediately. The next question is whether you should enforce it and in fact, whether a court will issue an injunction during these times of high unemployment. Um, so, you know, again, starting, I guess, with the court question is whether a court will enforce it during this period of time. In prior uh, recessions, you know, 08, 09, uh, we saw that courts were more hesitant to do it. We went in, I remember um, in 08 or 09, we went in on an injunction hearing. We were representing a sales um, guy from a, from a, and his new employer from a medical device company. And basically as a throwaway line in our in his affidavit, we said something along the lines of he's not going to be able to feed his family if you do this. And otherwise he was, you know, he had, he was violating the non-compete and uh, he was in the territory. He was in the time period. He shouldn't have been doing it according to the agreement. And the judge latched onto that statement and, and we won and, and the other side went away. So it is more difficult from a practical standpoint to get injunctive relief now. Of course, injunctions are equitable in nature, which means the courts are going to balance the harms. They're going to look at the fairness. Um, so that's all stuff that should go into your determination or your client's determination about whether or not to enforce a non-compete agreement during times of high unemployment. Um, another thing to consider is your company culture. And this is a question that you have to raise with your clients or if you're a company, raise with your business people. Um, in normal times, is this something that you want to do? Do you want to subject um, employees to non-competes? And if so, do you want to enforce them? Or something like a non-solicit and confidentiality, good enough. Um, whether or not you should enforce this will come down to individual facts and circumstances. You know, was the employee in fact laid off or did they just happen to leave during this period of time and go to a competitor? Did he or she take something with them? Did they download information to a thumb drive, upload it to Google Cloud or something like that? And are they actively soliciting customers? And again, although you should be careful about this, as Michael said before, you absolutely, if you have rights that you need to protect, you should absolutely go into court and try to protect them, even if uh, it's going to be a little bit slower, even if a court may ultimately rule against you, you. There's no reason that you shouldn't be trying to protect, but you should be thoughtful about it. Um, you should consider the potential harm to the company. Is this somebody who's actually going to harm the company? And you should balance that with what are your other goals. Normal times, a goal is often to to staunch the bleeding or to send a message to the market or to remaining employees? Is that something that's going to that's gonna fly these days or do you really want to be able to show somebody taking your trade secrets or actively soliciting your customers? And then again, as I mentioned, the likelihood of obtaining adjunctive relief. Um, is it in fact an, an emergency? Are you going to be able to satisfy all of the elements to get an injunction? And is a court in this um, times of high unemployment going to actually grant an injunction? And then finally, consider the PR ramifications. Uh, last thing you want is to be on the cover of the Boston Globe or the Boston Herald because you went after somebody on a non-compete with some really bad facts for the company and, and or really good facts, I guess, for the departing employee. Um, so, so that's something else that companies should keep in mind in particular during times of high employment. Um, and the other issue, which actually just came up in a case from the First Circuit last week, um, is be careful when you're rehiring laid off employees. So a lot because of the, um, the situation um, and companies are starting to reopen again, you're going to start rehiring laid off employees. And in fact, 
if companies took advantage of the um, Paycheck Protection Program, PPP program, um, under the CARES Act, there's a requirement that if you want to be able to, to um, be forgiven on those loans, you have to maintain a certain level of employment and wage, um, you know, people's wages. And that's going to obviously, in a lot of circumstances, require employees to hire back employees, employers to hire back employees that have been laid off. Um, and in this Rusamano versus Novo Nordisk case, this did not involve the current situation, but the decision, as I mentioned, came out last week. Um, an employee was laid off uh, in 2018. He got he quickly, within three days, got a new job within the same company, within Novo Nordisk. Two years later, and then they did not ask him to sign a new non-compete agreement. They did not require that. Two years later, he leaves, goes to a competitor, Novo Nordisk sues, seeks an injunction, and the court ultimately ruled that because he was laid off, his employment was terminated in 2018. His non-compete therefore started to, to, the clock started ticking in 2018. It expired a year later in 2019. Because they didn't ask him to sign a new one, he didn't have one in effect. Therefore, in 2020, it had expired and he was no longer bound by it. And that was upheld by the First Circuit. So companies that are rehiring laid off employees should be careful about that issue, should consider that, should require employees rehired to sign new agreements. Um, it's less of an issue with furloughed employees because typically a furlough, the employee is not actually terminated. They're just, um, they're still receiving benefits uh, or at least health insurance, um, although they're entitled to unemployment, um, and, but they're still technically employed by the company. Michael. Thanks, Eric. So now we'll, we'll change over to a, a general discussion of basically just how to succeed in the ongoing, with the ongoing issues and in the post-pandemic world in the sense that this either could result in a lot more work from home arrangements that are more permanent. It could, and we talked about this a little bit earlier, but it also could result with a lot of people going back to work and what issues may arise with both of those situations. So with respect to the technical infrastructure, companies wanna make sure that you're, you're really vetting the new technology that, to the extent that you can, vetting the new technology that your employees are going to be using. Just as we spoke about before, there's a risk with newer technologies that are not, that are not necessarily fully secure uh, or that they are new and will need patches going forward going forward so that certain security issues are maintained. Uh, also, companies are going to want to implement administrative safeguards. So you want to make sure that your employees are talking to the right people. You want to be making sure that the the circle of people that has access to information is as narrow as it can be without excluding people that obviously need that information to conduct their, their daily job. Uh, monitoring logs, companies are going to want to make sure that they're, they're making a, a record of what's going on with the information and what's going on with the employees. So in Eric's example earlier of uh, the defense contractor getting an alert every time that there's a forwarding of an email from a company account to a personal account, you want to make sure that you're monitoring that type of transfer 
and that you're just making sure that you are using your best practices to keep the trade secrets uh, reasonably, reasonably secure. Device management, so that's things like, you know, you wanna make sure that people aren't using unsecure things on their cell phones, uh, any sort of per cell phones or their personal computers where they wouldn't have necessarily been tested by any sort of firm security. And you wanna make sure that there's not an issue where people are just freely using information back and forth between the company, the company hardware and their own hardware. Uh, trade secret audits as well. So make sure that you are one, monitoring the information, but also that you're periodically checking in on what information needs to be accessible. And for example, at some particular time, certain people, let's say 10 people need to have access to this information in order to conduct a project. But down the line, after certain phases of the project are complete, not every one of those 10 people needs access to the information. You wanna make sure that you can restrict the information as much as possible in that respect and still be able to conduct your business and uh, make sure that your projects and your, your assignments can go forward with the information that you have with the employees that you have working on them. Yeah, and as a, as a follow-up to what Michael just suggested, um, you know, there's also the idea of a formal trade secret audit, which you should do, which you should do if you're a company, you should consider doing, um, and you should do it with outside counsel to make, or in-house counsel to make sure that it is, um, to make sure that it's privileged. And this can, this can take all sorts of forms. We do them at our firm and, and you, you know, you talk to the IT people, you review the administrative safeguards and the technology that are in place. And really you're performing an audit like you would on anything else on how the people are protecting their trade secrets. And this goes back to the reasonable measures. Are you taking reasonable measures under the circumstances? And if, in particular, if you work with somebody who's experienced in this space like we are, you know, we'll know what the case law says about it for your industry, for your type of company, and generally, and we can help you come up with a program that will that will um, satisfy those obligations legally, but also um, practically speaking, are these things protected? Are the right people having access? Are the right um, technological safeguards in place? And really, this goes for Michael's um, bullet on, on focusing on technical infrastructure and also on the, the one I'm about to cover on shoring up agreements and whatnot. Um, you know, the IT people and the HR people and in-house counsel have been spending the last three months putting out fires, um, whether it's uh, immediately jumping to a 100% or almost 100% remote workforce, um, figuring out the technology to make that work, to make it efficient and economical without relaxing security standards, as we discussed. Um, how to, you know, somebody calls in every day with, I can't log into Citrix or, you know, this or that. So people have been putting out fires um, and you've got HR people who are, you know, their hair's on fire to keep using the same fire analogy um, because, because they're just, you know, there's layoffs happening, there's furloughs happening. There's all sorts of laws about return to work. They're putting together return to work plans. They're filling out forms for the government to, to ensure that they're following the, the laws, whether it's phase one, phase two, phase three, whatever. Um, and now that it's time, becoming time at least, um, to, to get back to some sense of normalcy, what we're really suggesting is you take that time and really sit down with your clients or if you're a company with your employees and with your management 
and your IT and your HR and figure out what did we do wrong? What can we do better? What can we do next time? And, and really taking the time now to think about all those things, whether it's, again, vetting the technology. Maybe you've been using Zoom this whole time, but maybe there's a, something that would work better in your organization or would be more secure, things like that. And the same goes for agreements, policies, and procedures. A lot of companies, frankly, didn't have remote work policies before because they never anticipated having remote workforces or at least remote workforces big enough to, to um, have a policy for. And again, they've been putting out fires, so they don't have a policy for this. They've just been going by the seat of their pants. Um, so now is a good time to sit down and think about what kind of policies do we want to have in place? Do we want to give everybody um, a device to work at home with? Do we want to require certain security safeguards for the devices that they're using, their personal devices? Do we want to say that you cannot use cloud services? Or do we want to have a specific one that the company pays for and it's dedicated to that? Um, do you want to have certain security safeguards on phones that people are using? Do you want to have certain requirements about printing from home and using USB drives? All of that stuff would go into a policy and you'd have to roll it out, you'd have trainings, but now is the time to be thinking about that while there's hopefully coming off of all of the kind of emergency stuff and before hopefully fall, hopefully this doesn't happen, but if it happens again, you want to be ready. We should also take the time to mark confidential materials if you haven't already done so with the assumption that people are going to be taking stuff off site now because they're working remotely. You want to review and enhance other types of agreements with employees, um, whether it's their non-compete agreements, their confidentiality agreements, and the same with business partners. Are you putting all the safeguards in there that you, that you want knowing that we're now in a remote world? You should build consensus with stakeholders at the business. Um, and that's important as far as what kind of culture you want to have. Do you want to be monitoring employees? Do you want to be using and enforcing non-compete agreements? Who do you want having access to certain information? Are you one of these companies that everybody gets access to everything from a cultural perspective? Or do you want to be a little bit more tight-knit to protect your information better? And again, as we just discussed, require laid-off employees to sign new agreements when they're rehired. Um, it's a simple task. Um, and it's going to be very protective, especially under that Novo Nordisk ruling, which is obviously just last week. And then again, you can have all these things. You can have a remote work policy. You can have new agreements. You can have consensus within the company and the organization. But if you don't train people on it, you're just not going to get compliance. Um, so training on the remote work policies is critically important. People are going to be working from home for the summer, the fall. Maybe your company or your clients are thinking this works really well for us. We can save on real estate costs and spend a little more on IT. So we're going to do this permanently, or at least for the foreseeable future. You know, you've really got to train employees and business partners um, to make sure that they know what that means and what's expected of them. And I'll turn it back to Michael for the last for the last bullet here. Thanks, Eric. So the last bullet we here we have here to continue to enforce your rights when necessary. We discussed this a little bit before, and the idea is you wanna make sure that you're balancing when, when you need to go into court and what level of emergency you have and whether or not there are other opportunities or alternatives to get the same relief without having to go to court. So for example, those agreed upon injunctions where you're discussing the exact type of relief that you that you would be seeking if you did go to court but that you don't have to necessarily go to court to get them and that's obviously going to be a negotiation between you and the other side 
but it's something that you can do in a quick manner. Whereas with the court, with the court system, the way it is now, you're not sure when you're going to get a hearing number one, and then two, when you're going to get a decision on uh, the matter that you brought before the court. So you just want to make sure that you're enforcing your rights to the best extent possible and in the most efficient way possible. And with that, go to the next slide. Yeah, so this, um, we've got a blog you should check out if you're interested in these issues, tradesecretslaw.com. We've probably done 12 or 15 blog posts on these very issues and others, a couple others that we didn't get to today but are interesting are enforcing your trade secret rights against an insolvent or bankrupt company. Um, you know, a lot of companies are facing um, their own cash, cash flow issues now. So using litigation finance to potentially pursue um, trade secret claims, stuff like that. We strongly rec recommend you check out our, our, our blog and also this article we published in Corporate Compliance Insights. You can see the, um, you can see the, the link below. And that really just covers everything that we just covered in a nice, concise way. Um, and with that, you know, thank you everybody very much for taking time out of your day today. We got some great questions. If you have others, we're unfortunately running up against the clock, uh, but feel free. The next slide's got our contact information. Feel free to reach out, call us, email us. We'd be happy to talk through these issues. Check out our blog again. Um, and with that, thank you to the Boston Bar Association for hosting this. And um, we hope everybody uh, learned something today. Thank you. Yes. Thank you very much. Thank you all very much.